Welcome to City Church Life on Life podcast, where the goal is to see lives transformed through vulnerable conversations around God's Word. We want to see men and women become strong, mature apprentices of Jesus. Well, let's take a moment to get our bearings. In lesson one, we saw that everything about life with God begins and ends in our Father's embrace. No matter what our story, whether we're the prodigal kid who's squandered our life with bad decisions or the self-righteous older brother who is angry and judgmental, no matter our story, God comes to us. In lesson two, we saw that the foundational posture for life with God is humility. Dallas Willard put it, humility is reality. It's a realistic assessment of who we are. As Amor Tolles writes in his wonderful novel, A Gentleman in Moscow, we can always choose to join the confederacy of the humbled. The low place is not a valley to escape from, it's a new ground to stand on. In lesson three, these conversations were placed in the context of discipleship. Jesus made it clear the main mission of his church is to make disciples, men and women who are learning to take Jesus' yoke upon us and walk with him. Learn from him how to do life. In lesson four, we saw this is not just an intellectual agreement that becoming a Christian means Christ truly unites his life to yours. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. In lesson five, we saw that the door that makes this union possible is God's justifying grace, that justification is not just an old theological term, but very much a modern preoccupation, that we're all trying to justify ourselves. But the gospel is that we're made right with God in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Well, today we turn to what has been called the highest privilege of the Christian life. If you want to know what it really means to become a Christian, here's how J.I. Packer answers that question in his classic book, Knowing God. He writes, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. He continues, For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Close quote. He's saying of all the benefits the gospel offers, none is higher than coming to know God as our Father. And as Packer summarizes, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father, this is even greater. And yet this language of God being our Father does not come naturally to many of us. Though everyone is created in the image of God, being a child of God is not something we are born with. It's something we become through receiving Christ as our Savior. That's how the Bible puts it in John 1. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right. He gave the right to become children of God. Now the Bible has a word for this becoming a child of God, and that word is adoption. It's only mentioned five times in the New Testament, but I agree with the theologian John Murphy who said uh, John Murray who said adoption is the very apex of redemptive grace and privilege. So it's not mentioned a lot but it's terribly important. Now to hear what the Bible means by this word adoption, we have to understand that what it meant in its original context is very different from today. Here's the cultural background very very briefly. Rome 
was a patriarchal culture where inheritance rights were passed down from one man, the head of the family, the paterfamilias, to another man, his, his eldest son. And if he didn't have a son, he adopted one to prevent his inheritance from being broken up and lost. So adoption was a legal transfer. It wasn't secretive. All parties in both families were aware of and approved of the transfer. It was strictly binding, widely practiced, and if one was adopted, it meant all of his debts were assumed and that he was granted all the rights and privileges of a natural-born heir. So here's how one classic scholar, Francis Lyle, puts it. The profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of son to his new father. All old debts were canceled. The adoptee was legally and in every way considered the same as a natural-born son, with all the privileges and responsibilities of that designation. Close quote. So that's the metaphor Paul's drawing on to illustrate what God's done for us in Christ. Incidentally, that's why he writes about our adoption as sons and not sons and daughters, as some modern translations try to clean it up. Paul wasn't being sexist, just the opposite. He was taking a term that was, in his culture, used only for men, and he was applying it to women and Gentiles and slaves. He's saying we're all adopted as sons. So in God's economy, adoption describes the way we come into God's family, not who we are in the family. Russell Moore puts it, there's no such thing in God's economy as an adopted child, only a child who was adopted. Adopted is the Bible's word for how we become children of God. Now that's not something to reluctantly admit, that you're adopted. The only children God has are adopted children. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 4 beginning in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. There it is. Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then an heir. An heir through God. Now, if Packer is right and adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel, we should, as disciples of Jesus, know what adoption entails. So today I'm just going to give you three highlights. First, it means you are given a new father. Now, maybe that word doesn't uh, connote something positive for you because we invariably relate that term to our experience growing up. And even if you were one of the few who had a great dad, it's still hard for many of us to believe God is our good Father. And yet Jesus asks us to call God Father, and Paul says that God has sent the Spirit of His sons into our hearts, and that Spirit is crying, Abba. This is not just some intellectual admission. Notice, it's, it's an experiential reality. God's Spirit is, the text says, crying out within us. That word means a loud cry or a shout of joy. Jesus wants us to see that His Father is our Father. And that word... Uh, he called uh, the, the one that Jesus called Abba, Abba Father, that he is our Abba too. We are, uh, as Brendan Manning put it, Abba's child. Now you may know that Abba is an Aramaic word for children of all ages. It's a term of affection. It means dearest father. Uh, today it's sometimes translated daddy, but uh, it's important to note this isn't casual. It's a term of, it's a term of deep respect and deep intimacy. It's, it's what you'd call your dad on his deathbed if you had the most respect for him and you had a great relationship. 
He'd be, it, oh, Dad, I love you so much. You know, dearest Father, that, that's the idea. It's deep, deep respect, deep affection. And Jesus says this is what God is really like. He is the dearest Father, the, the, the Dad we always wanted. And in fact, you could say that God desires every human being would know him and address him as dearest Father, that this is God's heart. Ernest Hemingway ended one of his novels, Isn't It Pretty to Think So? Uh, is this just wishful thinking that God is really like this? I mean, how could we possibly believe that God is, an almighty God is this good in a, in a world as harsh and, and cruel as ours can be? And the Bible says, because God rescues us, he rescues us and he adopts us. That God came into your life and looked all the way through you and said, I want that one. I choose that one. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, He chose us, quote, for adoption. Not because we're the sweet, cuddly, uh, saucer-eyed kid in the corner that any parent would love to have. No, we're more like uh, a Pippi Longstocking, if you ever read those books. And I love Pippi because she's this strong-willed, defiant kid, ready to fight at a moment's notice. She doesn't trust anyone. She's incredibly self-reliant, but you can see underneath that tough exterior is a wounded child. And she's a fatherless child, and she's trying to protect herself. And maybe I'm not the only one who can relate to Pippi. Incidentally, have you ever noticed how many great characters in literature are orphans? Harry Potter, Jane Eyre, James Bond, Frodo Baggins, Superman, Batman. And maybe we love stories about orphans because uh, something about that story resonates with us, of not having a home where we can ever rest. And how much we need a home, a safe place. But we too are not that cute cuddly kid with arms outstretched, we're, we are, all of us, more like that defiant, self-protective uh, rebel with our arms up. We're all like Pippi. <laughs> but what kind of father is our God? He's the kind of father who runs to meet his wayward children. Whether those wayward children squandered it all, or he's the kind of father who comes out personally to invite the self-righteous child into his party. That is, he's the kind of father we all need, no matter what our personal story is. And God doesn't just allow us to come home. God invites, God desires us to come home for us to see that He is our resting place. He's our true Father. He's, he's not the Father. He's your Father. He's your Abba Father. And I wonder if you're comfortable calling God your Abba. So what are we saying when we say God is our Abba? Well, I love how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. Uh, in, in question nine, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And the catechism answers that the, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul. And he will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. And that this famous line is so famous. He, this last line is so famous. He's able to do so as Almighty God, and he is willing as a faithful father. Well, there it is. Adoption means you have a new father who's not only able to help you as Almighty God, but willing as your faithful father. And amen means it is true. So that's first, you're given a new father. Second, you're given a new status and a new family.
a new status and a new family. In our culture, we miss the richness of this metaphor because our identity is largely an individual matter, something we curate for ourselves. But in the ancient Near East, your identity was inseparable from your family and family name. It was a shame and honor context. And Paul is, is writing to say that no matter what you've done or where you've come from or what your family's done, that you've been given a new name, a new family, a new identity with all the rights and privileges of a natural-born heir. And with this new status, we've been given something that we never had before. We've been given access. Now, we, we get this because if you've ever had a famous person's cell number, I don't know who that would be in Indiana, but maybe you had Mike Pence's uh, phone number or Peyton Manning's. Now, if you did, you'd, you'd never call them, but it would make you feel very special to know that you could. And you might remember in the book of Esther, it was a capital offense in the ancient world to approach the king unless you were invited in his presence. So who dares to wake the king in the middle of the night? Only his child crying out in fear, Daddy, please help me. And the Bible promises the Lord is near to all those who call on him. That is to all those who cry out in faith, Abba, Father. Now remember what it means that you've been adopted. It is a binding legal agreement where all your debts have been paid, transferred to your father's account, but we haven't just been forgiven our debts. You're welcomed into a new family and given all the rights and privileges, the inheritance of an heir. Uh, our father has not done this begrudgingly as if, he had to, as if he had to be coaxed into it by the blood of Christ, as if he were a, a disappointed father uh, and, and that Jesus had to change his mind. No, Jesus says, this is Luke 12, 32, stop being afraid. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. See, we, we are now heirs of the King of Kings. That's who we are. You say, wait a minute, I, I don't feel like royalty. I mean, if I possess the kingdom, how about a spouse? Or how about good health? If I have all the access and privileges of a king's kid, it sure doesn't feel like it. See, we're given these glorious affirmations, but then they collide with our experience, don't they? And the, the Bible's honest about this tension. On the one hand, it says in Romans 8, verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption, and that makes it sound like it's already done. But on the other hand, just a few verses later, it says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption. See, the Bible acknowledges that what we already have been given, we've not yet fully experienced. And how we get there is, a big, is another talk. Suffering happens to be a big, big part of it. But my point is it takes a whole lot of time and often a whole lot of pain to experience the rich hope of our adoption. So don't give up while you're waiting. Because doesn't it make sense it would take time for our hearts to catch up? I mean, imagine if you adopted a 14-year-old boy from Haiti. His first night in your home, would he feel loved and cherished no matter how much you tried to assure him? Let's imagine you were the best parent in the world and you'll prove to be better than he ever imagined. Still, it will take time for him to trust you and for his heart to become convinced that he's truly welcome, truly embraced as a true son. He would need constant assurance to relieve his fears. It would take time and so many assurances from you for him to ever come to trust you. It's the same with us. And that's a final privilege of adoption. You were given an ever-present comforter to assure your doubting heart. In the ancient world, adoptions were sealed with public witnesses so that in the future, if anyone doubted your adoption, 
or your rights to the inheritance, you could present that seal as a witness. Well, God's done the same for us. The Holy Spirit is, the Bible calls him the seal, the down payment, the guarantee of the inheritance that will one day be ours. That's Ephesians 1 verse 13. Romans 8 verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does this mean? Well, I love how the old writer Thomas Godwin in his book, The Heart of Christ, describes what Jesus means, John 16, when he says that the Spirit will speak to our hearts what he hears Jesus say. Here's what Godwin writes. All the Spirit's speech in your hearts will be to advance Christ and, and to greaten my worth and, and my love unto you. And it will be the Spirit's delight to do it. He can come in an instant and tell you the thoughts I just had of you and even at that very minute when I'm thinking of you so that you shall have my heart as surely as if I were with you. He's saying if you've ever had a sense on your heart that God really does see you and love you, Godwin is saying these feelings are not coincidental, that these moments when you glimpse, I do have a, a good Father in heaven who sees me and loves me, that God is communicating his love to your heart by his spirit. He's assuring you of your adoption, spirit to spirit. He's saying you're adopted. And he's saying that Jesus wants you to know that his father is your father and that he loves you so much that you might say, in him I trust so completely as to have no doubt. He will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God and willing as my faithful Father. Well, <clears throat> how much do you make of this, of having the Almighty Creator as your Father? Well, so often the joy is sucked out of our lives by a completely unnecessary problem. It's the problem uh, Paul brings up later in Romans 8 when he says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. I want you to notice he contrasts the spirit of adoption with what? With the spirit of slavery. And I want you to underline that phrase, fall back into fear. That though you've been given a new father with a new status and a new family, it's entirely probable we will fall back into fear. We'll forget our adoption and instead choose to live like orphans. Jesus promises, I will not leave you as orphans, but so many of us, though we're adopted children of God, we choose to live like orphans. Pastor Jack Miller put together a chart to help us diagnose. And in our uh, Life on Life groups this week, we'll go through a version of that chart and diagnose ourselves. Not to shame ourselves, but to ask, am I living as a child of God or am I living like an orphan? And as you do, remember, orphan is not a term for an unbeliever, but a believer, a son or daughter of the king, who instead has fallen back into fear. This oh-so-common but entirely unnecessary struggle many of us experience because the experiential reality of our adoption has never moved from our heads to our hearts. We are children of God, yet we live like orphans. Does that sound familiar? An orphan typically is a survivor but lives in perpetual fear of being abandoned. You don't trust happiness. You don't trust anyone. You've learned to rely on yourself and your own strength. And as a result, many orphans go on to achieve great things. But behind that achievement is a deep sense of insecurity and a crippling fear of failure and this constant fear of being found out as an imposter. It seems that you and I have such a hard time letting God love us. 
But if you ever adopted a child, how much would it hurt you for that child to grow up and one day say to you, you don't really love me, you just adopted me? Well, that would break your heart if you were a loving parent to hear, you don't love me, you just adopted me. But don't we say a version of this to God every time we doubt his love for us? No one ever put it more beautifully than the old writer John Owen who said, as your great trouble is about the Father's love, so you can in no way more trouble or burden him than by your unkindness in not believing it. He's saying so few of us experientially believe that God is our good Father, but because he is our Abba, the greatest sorrow we can cause him and burden we can lay on him, the greatest unkindness we can do to God is not believe that he loves us. But the wonderful part of that is the only obligation of the gospel is to, is to live in it, is to rest and sit down and let God love us. As First John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Does not your spirit cry out, Abba, Father? Becoming a disciple turns out to be a long journey of arriving where we started. Okay, see you next week.